Welcome to the weekly sermon from Generations Church. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Hale. Well, it is great to uh, be back with you today. Um, if I haven't met you before, my name's Scott, one of our pastors here, and uh, I haven't uh, gotten to speak with you for a couple of weeks up here because we have had some great ministers, haven't we? Uh, over the past two weeks, Miss Joy White. Joy, that was awesome. I wasn't here. I got to listen to it, and it was so good. So good. We had so many good, good things. Uh, is there anybody who's better named than Joy? Just Joy. She is Joy. Oh, she's awesome. Um, and, uh, and then last week, Mr. Ray Bench was here, and that was really good. We, I love Ray. He's such a great guy. Um, so, and, but today, I'm excited because we get to jump back into our series on Moses. And uh, we're looking at these, uh, if you, just to remind you, it's been a few weeks now. We're in the series, Moses and the Exodus. We're looking for the shadows of Jesus, who is the true Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Moses is kind of this proto-Messiah. And so we get some, some yeah, we get some uh, sort of types and shadows of the Jesus to come uh, that would come 1,500 years later. We also get some uh, exciting glimpses into the character of God in this and how God works and how God would provide salvation to people, uh, even in Jesus, the, you know, the ultimate salvation as he's providing this salvation to the Israelites from Egypt. Now, uh, I mentioned this a few weeks ago. When we were going through chapter four, we came across a really interesting phrase, and ever since, we've gotten so many questions and so many emails and things like this asking about this phrase. So today, we're actually going to take a little pause and move in the story forward, and we're going to talk about this because it's very important. It's a fascinating phrase in chapter 4, and then we see it repeated elsewhere. It troubles a lot of folks, and i got to admit, it troubled me a lot growing up. This is just one of those things you're like, what is happening here? What is happening here? God tells Moses, remember at the burning bush, he says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you're going to go tell the Pharaoh to let my people go. But then God says, and I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so Pharaoh won't let them go. And it raises some really interesting questions for us. What does the Bible mean here? What's going on? What is, he, what is it referring to when it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Does this mean that like we're all God's puppets? Like all of us are really just puppets? Like the whole free will thing's just an illusion here? We're just like his bar Barbie dolls. He's pulling the strings. Um, we think there's free will. We think there's cause and effect. But really, God's just manipulating everything. Is that what's happening here? And if that's the case, then, then is God continually actually choosing our choices? You think you made a choice of, you know, what to wear today, but really God made that choice for you. Did, is that what's happening? Is he predetermining everything? So what's happening is that, what's happening to Pharaoh? Is that what's happening to all of us all the time? And if so, well, how is that fair? How is that really, uh, how is that just for God? How, how is God holy and righteous to, to punish somebody for that, that, that person who actually had no choice over it anyway. They were just manipulated as they went along. So it raises some great questions. So that's why we're going to take, take an entire message this morning and talk about this. Um, you look at this verse right here, and you, you, know, you can get the idea from it. It seems the entire script is written. It kind of gives you a clue that the entire script is written from the beginning, for Pharaoh at least. And, and yet just before this, at chapter 3, God seems to hint that there's a part of a part of Pharaoh's hardening of heart is rooted in who Pharaoh already is and what God knows about Pharaoh. He says in Exodus 3.19 here, 
But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. Compels him to do what? Let them go, right? So, there, so what's happening here? What's happening? God's saying, my hand is going to have to enter this story to compel him to let you go because I know who Pharaoh is. I know Pharaoh's heart. I know it. I know what he's like. He's going to harden his own heart. And when I step in to compel him, it's actually going to be ultimately for your freedom. So, so what's happening here? Which is it? Is he stopping Pharaoh from letting him go or is he making Pharaoh let him go? Is he, what's happening? The reason why this is kind of interesting is Christians over the centuries, this has been a, a, a divisive issue. They have divided into camps over kind of this and the implications of this. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, like I said, some of the emails sent to me asking, what is with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? So today, we're going to deal with this, and then we'll pick up with the story next week in chapter 5. First of all, there's, there's going to be two important words uh, that we're dealing with that you need to know that are they're talked about within theological circles, thrown about all over the place. These words, one is sovereignty, sovereignty. The other is providence, sovereignty and providence. So what do these words mean? Sovereignty comes from the word for sovereign, which is literally a king. A king is a sovereign. So sovereignty. Um, when we speak about God's sovereignty, what we're saying is it's God's total authority, his total power to rule as he sees fit. He is God. He is sovereign. Uh, he's not jockeying for power with anybody else. There's not a, like an invading kingdom that's trying to overthrow God. He's it. God is God. Um, there's not a pantheon of gods sharing power. It's just him. It's just God. He has total authority and power. He's God. As we like to say, God is God and we are not. Thank goodness, right? Providence, providence is a, is a word. It's similar, but it, it refers to how he works out his sovereignty. How does God work that out? The way God works in history to bring about his will, his providence. And so there are some in the Christian camps who, who believe that God is sovereign in the sense of absolute control, that God says, I express my power by controlling everything, absolute control, um, every decision that's made. That, that's actually me. That's what God... Uh, and so they will say, well, unless you believe in that version of sovereignty, you really don't believe in sovereignty. And uh, so I want to make it really plain, plain and clear, and plain and clear today, from the very beginning, uh, God is sovereign. All right? Everybody say that with me. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. That is not up for argument in this or any normal... God-fearing church. <laughs> God is sovereign. There's too many scriptures to even start listing here that make it very clear in scripture. God is sovereign. But what does that mean now? Where it gets interesting is, here's where it gets interesting. We see evidence from scripture that he has chosen to use his sovereignty to grant his image bearers the freedom to make choices. This is like a huge monkey wrench in this whole sovereignty question, right? He's used his sovereignty to grant his image bearers the freedom to make choices. So that's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. The image of God is, is we actually make choices. That's, now, did he have to design the universe that way because he wasn't able to do anything else? No. He could have made everything 
you know, like a robot. He didn't, for whatever reason. I don't know why, but he didn't. Um, this is the way he designed the universe, our free will choices. And we believe very strongly our free will choices, they are not just some illusion uh, that he's just fooling us into thinking we're making. You think you're making a choice, but really, you know, I'm making it for you. He actually allows us to make free choices. In fact, he holds us responsible for them. Right? So that's the definition of a just God. He allows you free will choices, holds you responsible for them, the consequences of those choices. So, so there's some in the other camp who would say, well, then you're denying God's sovereignty. And the reason is because they've defined sovereignty as control. Sovereignty as control. Omnipotence to them. Omnipotence is omni, omnipower, all power. So omnipotence to them would also be omni-control, all control. Um, so some of our friends in, uh, in the Reformed traditions or Calvinist traditions, and I have friends that, you know, we get along really great. We have great cups of coffee, and we get along real great, um, as long as we don't talk about this. Uh, we're gonna, I, I, I've got family who... Calvinists, we get along really great. It's all good. We just don't talk about this. Um, but, but they would approach it this way. They would approach this. The, the famous Charles Spurgeon. Everybody heard of Charles Spurgeon? Guy much smarter than I am. But he's preached on God once, and he said, God has sovereign control over the courses of every dust moat. Sovereign control over the courses of every dust moat. That sounds really beautiful, right? I mean, you know what a, a mote of dust, that's that little grain of dust you see when the light comes through the window just right and you realize there's billions of them and I'm breathing them for some, you know? Every electron flying around, every proton on some obscure gas giant planet surrounding a star out in the Andromeda galaxy, God is, he's doing that, he's doing it. He's, he's caught, he is, he's total control over all of these things. Um, Spurgeon said, God's sovereignly, providentially guiding even the course of every particle of dust. So nothing in this universe happens that he is not making happen every second. So that means every choice, every good thing, and yes, every bad thing that people choose, every catastrophe, every atrocity that happens in nature or by choice of man in our lives is being orchestrated by this all-sovereign, all-controlling God at that moment. And if that's how you define sovereignty, then those folks would say that, uh, you know, me coming along and saying, well, we have actual free choice, they would say, well, you're denying God's sovereignty. Um, but I don't think that's true at all, if you can tell. Um, again, we all believe that God is sovereign. We all believe God is sovereign. The question is just how does he work out his sovereignty? How does he work it out? You guys know, uh, probably, hopefully you know, you know, I'm pretty live and let live on a lot of little theological details. You know, I know what I believe, and if you believe differently, hey, we can be brother and sister. We can walk in love and unity, and let's get cool stuff done for the kingdom of God. Right? But this is important. This is a very important thing. We can absolutely disagree on the exact nature of the sovereignty of God, and I'm fine with that. We can disagree on that. We can still be brother and sister. But to insist that, a, that people who believe in actual free choice are denying God's sovereignty just isn't fair. And I actually think it does a disservice to the kingdom of God. If, if I can just stick my toe a little further into uh, this mongoose fight, 
I'll say this. In fact, the idea of God's absolute control over every event, every thought, it can actually be harmful for some people. I'm speaking from personal experience now, all right? I'm speaking from personal experience, forcing the idea on people of an all-controlling God. For some people can make the idea of serving such a God an intolerable choice. When I was in my late, twi- late teens, early 20s, somewhere around there, uh, I was going through a really, really tough, tough time spiritually in my walk. And this issue right here was right at the root of a lot of it. Very nearly lost my faith over what seemed to me at the time uh, this sort of, again, an intolerable choice of believing in no God or believing in this God who puts every evil thought into the hearts of men and directs every hurricane and inflicts every child who has cancer at St. Luke's, everything as he chooses. And, and, and what, was, what was interesting, this was, uh, it was kind of originated with some well-meaning Christians. They weren't at, from our church, and they, they wouldn't know how I was raised. But, you know, you get older, and you start meeting other people, and you get together, and we would get together. We had Bible studies outside uh, from other churches, and, and my, you know, I kind of would never, uh, had never seen any of this before. I didn't, I didn't know this, these beliefs existed, and I get out there, and uh, that God is directly responsible for everything in the universe, including every evil. And praise God that through some study and some fellowship with other believers, uh, found that this need not be true. That that need not be true for us to fully believe in God's omnipotence and his sovereignty. Uh, You know, we blame God for a lot of random events in the universe. Genesis tells us that he created the universe. And what did he say after each day? It was good. There's a lot of random things happening in the universe. Um, God, in his infinite wisdom, created the universe with a pretty firm set of universal laws, right? Like there's this thing called gravity, right? Gravity works. God created it, right? And uh, if, if the apple falls from the tree, I don't believe it's because God didn't like that apple. I think it's because he created gravity, right? And the earth, you know, wants that apple. Um, and so there's some things that are in motion, some things that are bad, that just happen. You know, life happens. Uh, we live in a fallen universe, so there's things that happen that aren't always good. And they are just according to the laws of this universe. Um, <clears throat> last week, I got a sinus infection. I don't think it was because God didn't like me last week. I think it was because my 10-year-old son had a sinus infection the week before, and I was hugging him too much. And, uh, and then I got it, right? There's some just cause and effect in the universe. Now... We'll also say this, there's another force at work in the universe that we firmly believe in, and that is the demonic. There are satanic, there are works of darkness that are hell-bent, pardon the pun, on, on coming against you, right. right? There are works of darkness that, they, and they, they, you know, want to inflict everything they can on you, and we stand against those. Now, here's what's interesting is Jesus comes along, and through Jesus... He gives us authority over the works of darkness. We have authority over these works of darkness, right? So we can stand against them. He tells us to pray against these things. Now, by logic, that means Jesus didn't perform those works of darkness, right? God did not give us authority to come against God's works. Amen. Everybody think that makes pretty good sense, right? Um, 
So Jesus isn't, Christ isn't performing these works of darkness. So here's, that's, that's kind of what we're talking about here. The, the trick is not making sovereignty something it was never intended to mean. Total authority and power is not the same as causation and control. Total, total authority and power, which God has, not the same as causation and control. Um, I know we're getting a bit deep in the woods here. We're, we're about to come on out. Um, I, will, I will say this too. The idea of, of God directing every dust mote. You know, when you just think about that, that oh, that's a, that's, an, that's a beautiful picture. But you know what? God said when he did his creation, it was good. That tells me he, he did it good. That dust mote knows where to go because of the laws of the universe he created. And a God who has to tinker continually with every, uh, you know, atom in the universe to keep it going, there's something wrong with that machine, Right? Uh, so we don't believe that that is the case. In fact, there's a word for it when God does enter into, you know, the machine and do something special. That word is miracle. That is a miracle, right? Uh, so to, to believe that he's tinkering with absolutely everything all the time is actually, to me, the definition of chaos, not miracle. Um, so anyway, there we go. That's gospel according to Scott. All right. With all this in mind, let's, let's dive into Exodus for today. <clears throat> There's, so this idea of, of Pharaoh, God hardening the heart of Pharaoh. So here's where it's interesting, because this, this story here kind of puts everything I just said on trial a little bit, doesn't it? So what's going on with Pharaoh? What's going on there? There, there are basically three uh, main arguments you could make, a doctrinal explanations for, for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And you can believe more than one of these at a time, uh, you know, to believe like one or two of these things has actually happened. There's three different explanations. So let's look at these and see what we think. Uh, number one, here we go. Number one is that God hardened Pharaoh's heart because God always determines everyone's decisions for his own glory. So this would be what we were talking about, um, sort of a Calvinistic um, view. And I will say this too, to, to, be, to be fair, because like I said, I've got family, I've got friends who are Calvin. There's a large spectrum, even within those camps, of, of where in their, they, they would say, uh, no, I'm a hyper-Calvinist, or I'm a mid-Calvinist, or I'm a little bit Calvinist, a little bit rock and roll. There's a, you, you could be all over the place. And on the other side, the Arminian side, which was, if you don't know that word, that's kind of what we are. The Arminians would be like us and the Wesleyans and the Methodists, Assembly of God, that sort of thing. That we would say, uh, there's a big spectrum there too. Uh, um, among our camps, uh, how much freedom there is and how much faith is involved in our faith and how much it's God's faith and this kind of stuff. So, so not to say that there's only two ways you can be, because you might be sitting there thinking, well, I'm not exactly that, but I'm sort of in the middle there. Fair play. So this says uh, to say God hardened Pharaoh's heart is really no surprise because God's always the one hardening or softening people's hearts. And so it just happens to mention it here. And so we should assume from this a universal truth. And here's where a lot of Christians get in trouble. We assume a universal truth from something happening one time. But we assume a universal truth that that is what God is doing all the time. That's that explanation. Here's another explanation. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Because God sometimes determines some people's decisions in order to demonstrate his authority. We see some evidence for this in different scriptures. I won't go into all these scriptures, but, uh, you know, Pharaoh saw himself as a god in human form. 
We see that in other scriptures that Pharaoh said, I am a God. And so, of course, he believed my will is supreme. My will is done on earth. That is what it means to be a God. Your will is done. Um, And so the ultimate power of God to be displayed over Pharaoh, this is really a kind of a battle of wills, really. It's God's will versus Pharaoh's will to say my will will actually overpower your will. And so the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, this explanation, may be a very specific case of God saying, hey, I am God, you are not, and I'm going to prove it to you, right? And this camp would also say, uh, this makes sense, because the very fact that it is mentioned that he hardens his heart shows that it was worth mentioning. It bears mention because it's an unusual event. So there's that camp. Number three, third explanation. Another is that God hardened Pharaoh's heart as judgment for Pharaoh repeatedly hardening his own heart first. So judgment. Now that's kind of, we don't like talking about judgment. You know, that's not a fun word to talk about God's judgment. But God's judgment is actually his justice. And justice is a good word, right? We like justice. We don't like judgment. We like justice. His judgment is his justice in action. Um, And so in this case, it takes the form of God solidifying, kind of, it's like a hardening, a almost a baking of our choices. You can imagine our opinions and the way and our choices are kind of like this like loose cake batter. And we're just like, yeah, I think I'm going to do this. And, you know, a cake batter. And God's like, I'm going to bake this cake and this is what you are, right? So this is kind of the idea of his judgment and his giving us over to our own way. We see some really good evidence for this in Romans 1. We're going to look at it in a second. If you haven't guessed already, I like, I like explanation number two. And, and choice number three, um, I, I can't see how to build a, a good case for choice number one out of the facts that we have in the book of Exodus. But let's see, let's look at the New Testament now, all right? Because you might be thinking, well, Jesus come, everything's new. So let's look at the New Testament and see what this, what's said. In Romans chapter one, the apostle Paul, you can turn there if you want to, he says this about how God's judgment works. Now remember, this is Paul, this is after Jesus' life, death, resurrection, so this is part of the, the, new, uh, the age we live in. And, and there's a connection here, I promise. In verse 18, he says, God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodly behavior and the injustice of human beings who silence the truth with injustice. God's wrath, that's another one of those words we do not want to talk about very much, right? Wrath, that's, that sounds scary. His wrath is his his judgment, it's, his, it's the anger, it's, it's the emotion associated with judgment. And notice it says, is being revealed, is being revealed. It's an ongoing present tense. It is being revealed. This isn't the judgment waiting for everybody on judgment day, you know, the end of all time. This is being revealed now. It's currently from heaven against ungodly behavior and the injustice of human beings who silence the truth with Injustice is this Greek word adikia, and it means wickedness or something contrary to his righteousness. And he says there are people who just know better. It goes on to say that, that we know better, somehow we know better from creation, just from looking around, or, or from our own conscience. Romans 2 will go on to talk about our conscience, God speaking to all of us by the Holy Spirit. And some of us who know better, or, or maybe it, we know better because of the way we were raised. We were just, you know, we were raised by a, a good mama, and she taught us better than this. And, and there's multiple ways where God's truth 
you know, gets down into the pores of our spirit, and people know better. And when we deny that, just because we want to put that selfish life that puts us first and serves us, when we continue to deny what we know to be true, ignoring God's voice, when we insist on making our choice, we suppress truth through our choosing of unrighteousness. Suppress truth. And when that happens, see, repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly over time, there may actually become a point, come a point where God says, okay, have it your way. I will no longer try to restrain you. I will no longer try to pull you back or warn you. I'm not going to bug you anymore. That's a scary day to think of. But it seems that this is true. And that is the form his judgment takes in this life. This is not the judgment day life. It's a, it's a form of judgment. His wrath poured out. We can, we can keep reading for examples of how God's wrath is revealed. In verse 24, so God abandoned them to their heart's desires. 26, that's why God abandoned them to degrading lusts. And 28, since they didn't think it was worthwhile to acknowledge God, God abandoned them. He abandoned them. This word used in each one of these verses is literally to hand over or give up claim to. Like if you were arguing with somebody about who owns the car and you finally just say, I give up claim to it. I give it up. I give up. I give, I give up claim to it. I hand it over. It's just, it becomes this repeated example of what the wrath of God looks like in this life. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because it's a really different picture than what we think of if, if I just went to a guy on the street and said, hey, wrath of God, what do you think? Wrath, right? This sort of wrath is not what we picture. This is not shooting fire from his fingers and zapping people, you know, this sort of thing. This is not God flipping out and going medieval on people. It's God actually saying, all right. I'm abandoning you to your choices. I'm allowing your heart to fully form around the choices you've already made. I'm allowing your heart to harden, to harden. So God hardens their hearts, not making them do something against their will, like a puppet. He's solidifying the choices they have already set in motion. It's a really different picture of what it means to harden, to have your heart hardened. Now, let's jump back to Exodus. Let's see if this is what's really happening with Pharaoh. When we look at the evidence in Exodus, we find out there's about 20 times, roughly, it's mentioned of this hardening of the heart with Pharaoh, about 20 times. And when you know it, it just so happens about 10 of those times are Pharaoh hardening his own heart, and 10 of those times is God hardening the heart of Pharaoh. And then what's really interesting to me is when you start looking at who's hardening whose heart first. Check out, I, I like charts and graphs, so here, really quick, check this out. Pharaoh hardens his heart. All, it, starts, it starts, repeatedly, he's, it says that he hardened his heart, Pharaoh did, starting of chapter 7 on through chapter 8. The first mention of God hardening the heart of Pharaoh doesn't happen until the sixth plague in chapter 9. That's when God enters in, <coughs> excuse me, and true to his word, he begins to harden that heart of Pharaoh. He, he bakes it. Even though Pharaoh, even mentions after that, is still hardening his own heart. 
after that. Pharaoh makes his choices, and, and so God's judgment over Pharaoh enters the scene. It solidifies that choice. So if somebody asks you, did, you know, did, was Pharaoh, why was he so stubborn? Was it because God, you know, wasn't, was forcing him to? That's not fair. You can say, no, 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 no. He hardened his own heart first. He hardened his own heart for a variety of reasons. You know, why did he harden his own heart? I think, well, number one, I think he was a jerk. Um, you know, just probably. Um, number two, uh, Pharaoh put economics ahead of human kindness. It was a, kind of a business decision to him. I'd rather, rather than do the humane thing for the, the, all these people, it's better for my economy and the Egyptians if they just make them keep working. Uh, he believed also, remember, he believes himself to be a god. And so he believes himself to be the God who owns the Israelites. And so when Moses comes and uh, says, let, God says, let my people go, he rejects that. He rejects them being the people of Yahweh. He says, no, no, let my people go. They're my people. You know, and Moses says, well, let us go to the desert so we can worship God. He's like, God's standing in front of you. I'm not gonna, you don't need to go to the desert. You know, you should be worshiping me. I'm the God, you're my people, and so this is what Pharaoh's reaction is. And it's only then, after repeatedly, repeatedly acting on these actions, does God harden Pharaoh's heart. And this is the form that God's judgment takes for Pharaoh. God makes sure Pharaoh ultimately gets to reap the fruit of his decisions. He makes sure of it. Now, this is kind of cool. Once you see this, you can't close your eyes to it anymore. It kind of uh, explains a whole lot of other things. God's, this solidifying of choice being God's response to our choice, it helps explain a whole lot of things. I mean, think about it. Um, uh, the unpardonable sin. Who's heard of the unpardonable sin, right? Jesus talked about this. Uh, people who repeatedly say no to the Holy Spirit, I deny the Holy Spirit, I speak against the Holy Spirit, I don't, I don't acknowledge his works or his miracles, his power, his voice in my life, I say no. Well, I mean, the Holy Spirit, think about it, is the agent of God's mercy in our life. It's the agent of salvation and, and his rebirth and life, right? And so if we're saying no to that, then we're saying no to any possibility of salvation, and our choices may become solidified. You know, we, we, we all believe our choices are going to be solidified at some point. We believe that we're going to run out of choice, and we believe that point is judgment day. You know, that's when you, you run out of choices. But the surprise for some people is that for some of us, that happens before we die. It also explains why angels no longer defect and demons don't get saved. Amen. You, you ever have your kid ask you this? My children, when they were little, they asked me, can we pray for the devil? Can, we, can, can God just forgive the devil, please? Right? Have you ever noticed the angels, the angels made a choice, they knew better, and they made a choice, didn't they? Uh, are you on this side or that side? And the, the Bible says a third of them went to follow Lucifer, and there's, there's no more defection. There's no record of another angel, you know, years later just going, you know what, I think I want to become a demon. I, I, they look like they're having fun. We don't see that. And Jesus never asks the demons to repent. Even when he's face to face, you know, he's casting them out. He, you know, he's there and they're having this one-on-one -on -one con confrontation with demons. What's your name? And they're like, Legion, because there are many of us. He's never like, Larry, is that you? <laughs> Larry, come on, man. You were such a good angel one time. What happened? What happened? Come, you know, I'm down here. I'm preaching repentance, salvation. 
Why don't you just come over, repent, worship me, we'll get you back on track. Jesus never does that, right? That conversation never happens. The assumption is that demons have made a now solidified choice. And this may help explain it. To bring it a little closer to home, isn't marriage the solidifying of a free will choice that we once made? Right? In the beginning, we say, I am free to marry you or to not marry you, right? And I choose covenant. I choose covenant. I choose fidelity. I choose permanence. And so, you know, I'm, I'm married to Melissa. We just celebrated 20 years uh, this past summer. And it's, it's wonderful. And I, don't, I look at Mel, and um, it, it, for me, is no longer a daily decision whether to stay married, whether I'm going to keep choosing marriage. It's not a daily decision. i got to tell you. I don't look at Mel in the morning and say, oh, I love you, baby. I can't promise tomorrow. <laughs> but today, you got me. That's not a marriage, right? No, no, our souls are united, right? Melissa's got me till there is no more breath in my soul left, right? Because marriage is the solidification in God's eyes of a choice we've made for eternity. Um, so there's a lot of implications, and we can talk about that some more, but that's really for another sermon. Um, but we can talk about, uh, we're gonna, we'll talk about some of these things in home life um, this week. But for today, I want to finish by, by challenging you with a, with a practical question, and that question is this. What choices are you making now that you don't want to be making forever? What choices are you making now that you don't want to be making forever? As we're working through this this morning, is your conscience stirred? What are the areas you can see you're working against God rather than with him? Is it possible you've been suppressing the truth that you know better about, but you suppress it because you're kind of in in denial of these self-centered, ego-driven choices that you want to just keep making? Maybe you even have a vague plan in mind. You know, someday when I'm older, whatever that means, whatever older means to me, someday when I'm older, then I'll change my life. And, you know, as long as I squeak in that change before I die, I'll arrive at God on good terms. But here's the wake-up call. Here's the wake-up call. Some of us may find that the more we keep making those choices, the less possible it is that we will ever repent. The more our heart is getting hard and the less that repentance will ever be a choice we'll make, the more we make those choices. And God may eventually give us over to our repeated insulting choices. If you don't want to be making those choices forever, let me ask you another question. Why make those choices for one more day? If you don't want to be making them forever, why make them for one more day? Why deny the Holy Spirit one more day? Repentance is saying, "I'm, I'm sorry. It's turning I want to change my mind about this. I want to change my my living, my ways. And this would be a great day to ask him to do, to ask God for that help. Call out to God when we pray in just a few minutes. Call out to him. Ask him for help. And also, 
call out to our brothers and sisters here. Call out to our family. See, God loves you so much, and I'm a big believer in this. God loves you so much that he has rooted you in community so that you can walk out your walk in relationship. We get to walk out our spirituality in relationship with other people. So ask for help. Be honest. Let us confess our sins one to another, right? And pray for each other so that we may be healed. In the end, uh, I'll say this. It's not because we're afraid of his wrath that we should be coming to Christ. It's actually because we respond to his grace. That is what is wooing us. We're being wooed by his grace. It's actually God's kindness that woos our hearts to soften our hearts, that calls us to change our ways, to say, I don't want to take advantage of somebody. I don't want to you know, be the abuser in a, an abusive relationship. I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't, when someone's kindness is being offered, I don't want to just take advantage of it for my own selfish gain. Last scripture, Romans 2, says, Or do you have contempt for the riches of God's generosity, tolerance, patience? Don't you realize that God's Kindness is intended to lead you to change your heart and life. God's kindness leads us to repentance. His kindness leads us to repentance. But then it goes on to say, you are storing up wrath for yourself because of your stubbornness and your heart that refuses to change. A heart that continually is shoving that kindness away that says, I just want to keep going in my own direction. I just want to keep going in my own direction. So yeah, Paul talks about God's judgment. That's a serious thing. It's a for real thing. But notice what it starts with. It starts with God's kindness. It starts with kindness. That is what should soften our hearts, and it causes us to want to run toward God, not away from God. I know when when we hear this sort of thing, all of us are wired a little differently, right? We We all come to the table with kind of a different preset views of God. We have a default view of God that we come to him with. Some of us see God as, as kind. We see him as caring, as a friend. You know, I'm a friend of God. You know, we sing that, and we really mean it. We see him full of mercy. He's, he's loving. And maybe some of those folks, if you're, that's you, you're not really comfortable talking about a God of judgment, a God who's holy and righteous, Right? Because that's not the cuddly Jesus we'd rather talk about. Right? And I would remind you, if that's you, I'd remind you that yes, his love is infinite, but the Bible also says that he is a jealous God. He is a jealous God. And it also says that whom he loves, he also disciplines. Amen. Hebrews 12, 6. Go read that one. Ouch. Right? <laughs> he disciplines who he loves, and it ain't always a picnic. That's our God. Now, others of you, I know you too, because I get your emails. As soon as I start talking about God's kindness and his love and his grace and his mercy, I can see you emotionally wince in your seat, and you're like, come on, all this talk about God's love and kindness, that's not the holy God that I grew up serving. You're right, you're taking this grace thing too far. Let's bring back some judgment, right? And I would just say, To those folks, being more conservative than God doesn't win you any bonus points. (laughs) God doesn't, God's not going to be contained in any box, is he? 
He's not going to be contained in any box that we come up with, that we build to, to satisfy our emotional comfort, because we're emotionally comfortable with a certain you know, kind of God. Whether we long for that God of judgment or we long for that God of love, God is God and we are not. Amen. And, and I'll say this, in the end, I suspect that the wrath of God is far more just and the love of God far less tame than we ever imagined. Amen. I'll say it again. I suspect that the wrath of God ultimately we find to be far more just and his love far less tame than we ever imagined. Amen. What's important for us to remember is that God is God. And not only is God God, but God is good. Amen. He is good. And so we can trust him completely. And, and I have to remind myself of this daily, that this is not my show. This is God's story. God is the star. And I get to say, thank you, God, for including me in your story. Thank you, God. Help me to stay sensitive to your voice. Soften my heart, dear Lord. Let me stay sensitive so I can surrender to you more completely every day. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for all my brothers and sisters here this morning who may be experiencing kind of a growing awareness of the choices they're making that might be causing them to suppress the truth, to live in denial, to walk away from you. And I pray that you would give them the courage to repent, to turn, to see that joy that's on the other side of that repentance as our lives line up with your truth in a fresh way. And Father God, I pray for those here who are not yet Christians. They're still exploring. I pray that they would also have that awareness of your reality, that they would want to come towards you that they would not want to run away from you any longer, that they would see the beauty of the life you have designed for them, the beauty of a life in harmony with your will. And Father, I pray that you would save all of us here today from our own hard-heartedness. Give us the courage to make those choices that give you glory, that lift you up, that honor you. May our ego step back into the background so we can find our delight in you. In the name of the resurrected Jesus, we pray. Thank you for listening. Be sure to visit gchurch.net for more information about this podcast and other resources. 